In his book, Crossing the Divide, Jake Hansen reflects on the life and ministry of John Wesley. There's another book in my library entitled England Before and After Wesley, and Wesley went through England preaching the gospel, and as a result of this man's life and the Lord using him, England was transformed, every sector of society. You would think that there would be a positive response to this, but there were many people that were quite infuriated by the preaching of John Wesley. And this is a quote from the book, The angry mobs would often be vicious, chasing Wesley and his companions with clubs, cleavers, or any other potentially deadly instrument in hand. Hansen wrote, he was often pelted with stones, smeared with dirt, grabbed by his soft hair, as one of the rabble once noticed in surprise, and chased into houses which they threatened to burn or tear down. Now, I preach sermons that have made people mad before. I remember I was in Africa and I was preaching, and the individuals just rose up in an uproar, but I have never, to this point, been the recipient of physical violence. You would not find me in the pulpit here today. (laughs) I wouldn't be here. But here John Wesley is, preaching the gospel, and he is under physical harm, physical duress, and he continues on. Transformation of a country came at a personal cost for this man. Of another book I read this year, A Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix by Erwin Friedman. This is a classic, and as I was reading this book for my doctoral class this year, I reflected on my own leadership and my own ministry, and I said, oh, Lord, help me, because as this author went through, I want to read this quote, a willingness to be exposed and vulnerable, one of the major limitations of imagination's fruit is the fear of standing out. It is more than fear of criticism. It is the anxiety at being alone, of being in a position where one can rely little on others, a position that puts one's own resources to the test, a position where one will have to take total responsibility for one's own response to the environment. Leaders must not only be afraid of that position, they must come to love it. Now you may think, oh, I'm not a positional leader. As one person said, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. All of us have influence. All of us are leaders. The question is, what type of leader is God calling you to be? I read this quote many times in the book Education. Remember in college, we were given this as our textbook, and as I read through these pages, this quote, spoke to my heart, the greatest want of the world is the want of men. She's speaking in the generic. This includes men and women. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right Though the heavens fall. 
That is what God is calling us all to be. Amen? And as I've reflected on this, there's a prayer in the book of Acts that we all can pray. And this is a unique prayer in Acts chapter 4, verse 29 to 31. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has fallen on the disciples, and in Acts chapter 4, the disciples get together in another prayer session, and they call out to God, and specifically this time, they ask for one thing. Acts chapter 4, verse 29 through 31, Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. You can pray for holy boldness. In other words, Holy boldness is not a characteristic that you receive through good genetics. Holy boldness is not a character trait like sanguine or melancholy. According to the Bible, holy boldness is something that we can all have if we ask the Lord for it. So these individuals are gathering together and they're asking the Lord for holy boldness and the Lord gives it to them. And there have been times in my life when my knees are shaking and I'm like, I don't know if I can go through this, Lord. And I look to this text and I said, Lord, give me your holy boldness. Now, notice I said holy boldness. I know people that are bold, but they're disrespectful. You following me? It's unholy boldness, rude. People that are bold, that stand out brash, just unfurl the colors. And I'm like, here I am disrespectful, name-calling, all types of things. But this is a different type of boldness, a holy boldness. And look at the boldness here displayed in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, this is the type of boldness that you stand up for the Lord and in that standing up, people perceive this person reminds me of Jesus. That's the type of boldness that the Bible is talking about in holy boldness. It's a boldness that after you interact with a person that is holy and bold, they come away and say, that person was bold and I see Jesus in the life of that individual. John Wesley holy boldness for the Lord. Peter and John, holy boldness for the Lord. And as we continue in our series, Lessons from the Life of Paul, I want to read this text. A similar experience to John Wesley in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 27, being in prison, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and all day in open sea. I have been constantly on the move. Similar experience to John Wesley. Here's an individual receiving physical infliction, affliction from, from his own people, 
from the Gentiles as he's out there preaching the gospel. And when you read the book of Romans, you're like, hey, how is it possible that a gospel that is so beautiful can be met with such, with such persecution? He goes on, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Why was Paul met with such opposition? For the preaching of the gospel and look at the most succinct encapsulation of the gospel in my estimation in the book of Romans. Here it is in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. This is a beautiful statement. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You will be saved. The gospel is simple. I'm not saying that the gospel can't be plumbed to the very depths throughout eternity. I believe that we would be studying the gospel. But here it is, succinctly. If you call on the Lord today and you say, I accept you as my Savior and Lord, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. No questions asked. Do you believe that? That's the beauty of the gospel. You can have that assurance today. You come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I want you in my life. I want to accept you. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you have the assurance of salvation. This is good news. And how is it possible that this proclamation of a beautiful gospel, accepting Jesus as Savior, and you're saved, can be met with such opposition? I like to pick this verse apart with you a little bit, because you'll notice what Paul says actually says in this verse because we like to gravitate to this section here and I praise the Lord for that saved praise the Lord for that amen you accept him as your savior and you're saved the assurance you can have right now accept him proclaim with your mouth believe in your heart you are saved look at the way that Jesus is described. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is what? Jesus is Lord. That has different implications than Savior. Isn't that right? If I come to you or someone comes to me and says, David, I am your Savior. Oh, praise the Lord. Wow, thank you. You know, let's say you're out in the middle of the ocean and you're drifting at sea and, and you're running out of food and water and a big boat comes alongside of you and they throw you a rope to pull you up to the big ship and they say, I am here to, as your savior. And I say, oh, thank you. I mean, who wouldn't want that? And then you get on the ship and then they say, I am now your Lord. How would you respond? I'd be like, that's bad news, right? I, what, what does that mean? I mean, I thought you were saving me. Then you get on the ship, and then it's like, I am now your Lord. And I'm like, wait, what, what a minute. Wait a minute. Now, everyone loves the fact that Jesus is Savior, but how do we process this reality of a Lord of our lives? And I'll be upfront with you. 
This is not a popular reflection today. No more than it was in the first century. Now, let me pick it apart with you a little bit. This is from Dr. Charles Stanley. He's an evangelical scholar and preacher that's well-known in the radios and so forth and television. And he reflects on the term Lord. In the New Testament, Lord is the most frequently used title for Jesus Christ. Although we rarely use this term daily in our lives, we are all quite familiar with another word, boss. Now, when I read this, I was like, oh, should I include this in the slide? But he goes on. That is basically what Lord means. One possessing authority, power, and control. His authority causes anger or fear in individuals who have not yet yielded to him, but those who have experienced his loving kindness, trusted in his goodness, and surrendered to his authority, take comfort in knowing him as Lord of their lives. The most frequently used term to refer to Jesus is Lord. Now, it's not the type of boss that you and I have. Well, I can't say, oh, I'll be careful right now because I'm the boss is the conference and we have conference officials here, but you, you're following me. All right? The, I, just, I need to stop. Okay, but... but <laughs> please carry back a good report, Tobin. And, uh, but but it, this is not a human lord or boss. This is a boss that is good, but it's still this idea of Lord. If you're faithful to the text, Jesus as the Lord and the Greek Kyrios, which may mean God, Lord, or Master, appears over 700 times <clears throat> excuse me, in the New Testament referring to Jesus. 700 times. Now, how do we process this as Christians living here in the 21st century? Everyone wants to be saved. Not everyone wants Jesus to be Lord. And there lies the rub. This is a biblical proposition that is impossible to reframe any other way than this concept of lordship over every aspect of our lives. Now, what is the paradigm for this? Now, go on here. Here's some example. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Luke 6, verse 5, our only sovereign Lord. Jude 1, verse 4, and the Lord of Lords in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. And I won't go through every case in which Jesus is referred to as Lord, but it's all throughout the Bible. And in the in the succinct way that Paul describes the gospel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the beauty of the gospel, the reality that you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord and you call on his name and your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that reality is in the context of Savior and Lord. It's not Savior or Lord. Now, as we look at this reflection here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, and now just as you accepted Christ Jesus, your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Now, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, here Paul 
gives the context for how lordship is framed in our response to what God has done. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul here says, oh, thank you, my brother. Paul here says, in consideration of everything that God has done, the mercies of God. Has God been merciful to you? Has God been patient with you? Has God been forbearing with you? Absolutely. I look back on my life, I would have given up on me. Time and time again, mercy, grace, forgiveness. And here Paul, for 11 chapters, has been spending an exorbitant amount of ink describing the mercies of God, the gospel, Jesus in all his glory, Jesus coming down to earth and revealing the character of God. And he says, in light of everything that God has done for us, Therefore, because of that, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Has someone ever done something for you that has deeply touched you? Something that you did not deserve? Have you received a gift before? that was so undeserving, yet you received and your heart was filled with gratitude. I have. And here in that context, in response to everything that God has done for us, we respond by saying, Lord, everything I am, everything I have, I give back to you. It's this reciprocal relationship. God initiates, we respond. God saves, we respond by saying, my Lord and my God. That is the nature of the relationship. God extends grace and we receive it and respond by saying, my Lord and my God. So in that context of everything that God has done for us, we reciprocate and respond by saying, Lord. If you take that out of the equation, this becomes a very different relationship. So, yes, Jesus is Lord, but it's in this context of the mercies of God. And notice how Paul responds to this, which is your reasonable service. In other words, this is not unreasonable. This is very reasonable. The lordship of Jesus in the context of the mercies of God is reasonable. 
This is from the sanctuary service. The dedication of means must be preceded by a dedication of life. One is the result of the other. A dedication of life without the dedication of means is not provided for in God's plan. A dedication of means without the dedication of life is not acceptable. The two must go together. Combined, they form a complete sacrifice, pleasing to God, a sweet Savior, savor unto the Lord. Now, what does the Lordship of Jesus really mean? We can talk about it in terms of concepts and ideas, but practically speaking, one is one application of Lordship. Obviously, we give our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice. We say, all that I have, all that I am is yours, symbolized by the burnt offering. We, we give ourselves to Him in surrender to the Lord Jesus. But let me get to an area that may be a little sensitive. Can I do that? When we talk about lordship, it means all of us, including our finances. Now, if there's one area of our lives that is very difficult in a marriage context, it's finances. Isn't that right? They say the number one issue for marital distress is money. That's the reality. And this is an area where it's easy, even for Christians, to compartmentalize and say, oh, you can be Lord of everything else except my finances. Right? And as I mentioned before, sometimes it's, it's easy to go through life and, and believe in God when we come to church, and then when we open our checkbook or, or, or YNAB, you need a budget online, we suddenly become atheists. Well, what happened? You know, this compartmentalization is, is very interesting. We, we, we structure our finances as though God doesn't exist anymore. At least functionally speaking, or at the best, deists. And so, so we look at our finances in terms of 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 an atheistic or deistic paradigm removing God from the picture. But when we talk about lordship, remember lordship is in the context of the mercies of God and Paul says this is reasonable. This is involving every area of our life. So, so God believes in theistic finances. Amen? Theistic, not atheistic. So when you open your your checkbook next time. Come to it believing in theism. Amen? Don't go atheistic. Believe in God. And so when you open that, God says, look, I want to partner with you. Now, just, just for, for reference here, God doesn't need our money. That's not what this is about. God wants a partnership. And if we are able to surrender this area of our lives, there's a richness and fullness that we can experience. So here it is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Notice he says, in my house. Tithe, 10% of our increase, our income, we 
return to the Lord. I don't like saying we pay tithes because it's not. It's all his. We're returning tithes. The Lord has it all. He owns it all. We're just, he, he gives us the stewardship and says, look, you keep 90%, return to me 10%, and we'll go into this partnership. And this is just a little education. Every year I do this, I have a little part on tithe just so we're educated. When, when you give up your tithe, we don't exist in a congregational context. Praise the Lord for that. Or else I would be very scared to get up and preach the gospel every Sabbath for fear that if I offend some dear saint by preaching a message, that suddenly the finances will dry up. Meaning that, that the congregation, no tithe, does not affect my monthly paycheck. In other words, the tithe does not stay here. It goes to the conference, to the union, and gets spread all over the world for gospel ministry. That's the beauty of it. Now, in some congregational contexts, uh, they, they don't have this beautiful system, and so the poor pastor is in a little church with 10 people, and so he's pumping gas uh, on, uh, during the week and then, and then preaching on the weekend. Or you go to a big church, and, and the preacher drives up in a, you know, in a Bentley and so forth and, and owns a $5 million house and has an $11 million jet. Okay, and so in this context, the system is very beautiful in that whether you're the pastor at O'Malley or the pastor at Pioneer Memorial Church in Bering Springs, Michigan with 3,000 members or out in the middle of nowhere with 10 church members, everyone gets the same amount. Very beautiful system. And if Hillside O'Malley, I pray this never happens, where all of a sudden we're to give, stop giving tithe, it doesn't affect, okay, whether I get to eat this month or not. That's the way this is structured. Now, just as a clarification, tithe is not a test of membership. Praise the Lord for that. Your membership is not, is not affected whether you give tithe or not. That's not the way our system works. But if you're nominated for leadership, we want you to model stewardship. Are you following me? So there's a difference between leadership and membership. And we have to hold everyone to that same criteria, just to be fair. And so this, this beautiful system is for gospel ministry all over the world and all over the world. Now people may wonder, hey, you know, how do we keep the lights on and the heat during the winter, a fellowship meal and all these things that we have at church? And this is a beautiful enterprise or, or work of faith, I should say, because the tithe is given and, and none of it is, is directly coming back to the church in the form of helping us pay our bills. And that is from our offering, church budget which you see every month in your bulletin. The church budget is what helps with the lights, with, with fellowship meal, with Sabbath school, with resources, literature, all of those other things come into that frame. And so this is just a faith venture with the goodwill of our church members returning to the Lord his, his, uh, his tithe and his offering. This is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. God says, test me. 
Test me. Step out in faith. And when I tell saints, some saints come to me and say, look, I'm, I'm on a fixed income. I, I can't do this. I don't know how I can make ends meet. And I say, look, step out in faith. Just give what you can, but start moving in that direction. And you will find 90% plus Jesus is more than 100% without him. That's the way that stewardship works. And so I, I know it's very difficult. I've experienced it before as, as illustrated in our children's story. But as the children of Israel were going for, from Egypt to Canaan, the Bible says the soles of their shoes did not wear out. Their clothes did not fray. Your car will last longer. Amen. You will find good deals when you go to shop for clothes. The Lord will bless you. He will bless your health. And God says, look, go on this faith venture with me and I will bless you. He says, I will not just bless you. He says, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough to receive it. I have an acquaintance of mine, his father, ran a cement truck business in Minnesota. There were many competitors in the cement truck business, and this business owner decided to step out in faith and return tithe. The Lord started blessing his business. So he said, well, Malachi chapter 3, let's return a double tithe. So he returned a double tithe. The Lord blessed his business even more. He returned a triple tithe. The Lord blessed his business even more, and his business became the number one producer of cement trucks. His last name, McNeilis. Have you heard of McNeilis cement trucks? He sold that business, now he owns Sterling, Sterling Bank, and he said, look, we cannot afford, we can not afford to not pay tithe. That's a double negative, but you understand what I'm saying. And so he said, look, you can't afford to have God out of the picture. The Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And so when we talk about lordship, it's talking about every aspect of our lives. And practically speaking, one application is stewardship. You know, this story, a man comes to, to, this, to, this, um, to this water pump. He's, he's very thirsty. He needs water to drink. And, and he's coming to it. And this is the only water for miles in the desert. And on this pump is a note with a glass of water, glass of a jug. There is just enough water in this jug to prime the pump. But, if you, but not if you drink some of it first. <laughs> this well has never gone dry, even in the worst times. Pour the water in the top of the pump and pump the handle quickly. After you have had a drink, refill the jug for the next man who comes along. That takes faith. The tendency would be to drink that water. But this is a step of faith. Pour the water in, and you'll have more than enough water in return. Very quickly, a few Bible texts remind us in this venture of stewardship. Mark chapter 10, verse 30, I tell you the truth. Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields 
for me and the gospel will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and the age to come. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty. Last but not least, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So in this partnership with God, the practical application of lordship to every area of our lives, finances, who we marry, where we go to school, we say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And with the understanding that God has always our best interest in mind. There is no one that I would rather trust my life to than a God that is the very definition of love. How many of you want to say today, Lord, my Lord and my God, by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that Jesus is Savior and Lord of our lives. We recognize that this is not a popular message. It has been met with opposition in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, in John Wesley's day. But we thank you that we can trust you with our lives. We thank you for this gift, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.